Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Sorry about the wait, but I've been pretty sick recently. And then when I got a little better, I broke my tooth. So yeah, it's been a hell of a couple weeks for me. But not to worry, I'm going to go ahead and do two episodes this week to make up for it. And I really appreciate all the listeners as usual and would love it if you could show your support by either giving us five stars on any platforms that you listen to us on, or you can stop by our Patreon page and donate some change. Or if you prefer to do a one-time instead of a reoccurring donation, you can stop by our Venmo page and donate to us there. The links will be below, like always. I also want to announce that Psycho Crime has joined the 4041 podcast family with podcasts like Movie Theater Time Machine and Free Your Geek. You can visit us at 4041media.com. So let's get into it. This week, we will wrap up our three-part series on 60s counterculture with The Weather Underground, one of the United States' first domestic terror organizations. Now, the FBI defines domestic terrorism as perpetuated by individuals and or groups, inspired by or associated with primarily U.S.-based movements that espouse extremist ideologies of political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. Under the 2001 Patriot Act, domestic terrorism is defined as activities that a. involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or any individual states. B. Appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce the civilian population to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. And C. Occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Now, while there is no one path towards violence, homegrown terrorists have been high school dropouts, college graduates, members of the military, and they cover a range of financial situations. Recent research by Matt Corbup in the British Journal of Politics and International Relations has suggested that domestic terrorism is a result of lack of opportunities for meaningful political engagement. In the 60s, the youth culture became more and more anti-establishment, creating the counterculture movement. Most people involved were fighting to enact change to racist and misogynist system, while other members were motivated by the hope for peace and equality, with even more driven by their need for enlightenment. The Weather Underground stated in print after 1974 that their political goal was to create a revolutionary party to overthrow U.S. imperialism. What made the Weather Underground unique was that not only were they almost all college educated, but they were predominantly from upper class or upper middle class white suburban families. The Weather Underground, also called Weather Underground Organization, formerly known as the Weathermen, was a militant group of young white Americans formed in 1969 that grew out of the anti-Vietnam War movement. The Weather Underground, originally known as the Weathermen, evolved from the Third World Marxists, a faction within Students for a Democratic Society, or the SDS. The major national organization representing the burgeoning New Left 
during the late 1960s. Members of the Weather Underground sought to advance communism through violent revolution, and the group called on America's youth to create a rear guard action against the United States government that would bring about its downfall. The original Weathermen, or the Action Faction, of the SDS was led by Bernadine Dorn, James Mellon, and Mark Rudd, and advocated for street fighting as a method for weakening U.S. imperialism. At the SDS National Convention in June 1969, the Third World Marxists presented a position paper titled, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, based on the song by Bob Dylan. In the SDS paper, The New Left Notes, the article the, the, the article asserted, among other things, that the Black liberation was key to the movement's anti-imperialist struggle, and it emphasized the need for white revolutionary movement to support other liberation movements internationally. The article became the founding statement of the Weathermen. Weathermen launched an offensive during the summer of 1969. In one action in the Northeast, it tried to recruit members at community colleges and high schools by marching into classrooms, tying up and gagging teachers, and presenting revolutionary speeches. At the Harvard Institute for International Affairs, the group smashed windows, tore out phones, and beat the professors. From October 8th to 11th of 1969, the Mothermen worked to organize thousands of young people in a direct assault on the police, who they deemed pigs. The group called this a national action, but newspapers entitled it the Day of Rage. The protests were to begin on the second anniversary of the death of Argentinian-Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara and were to coincide with the trial of the Chicago 8. Eight men charged with conspiracy for their actions during the Democratic National Convention in Chicago one year earlier. On October 6, 1969, Weatherman members blew up a statue in Chicago's Haymarket Square that commemorated the policemen who had died in a riot in 1886. The message of confrontation and violence was echoed in the Weatherman signs and slogans which read, Bring the war home, and the time has come for fighting in the streets. However, the days of rage proved to only be minimally successful. The demonstrations had very low turnout, as low as 100 by some counts, as well as several incidents of random and pointless writing. By the end of the weekend, 284 people, including local youths and SDS members, have been arrested, with the total bail amounting more to $1.5 million, which for 1969 was absolutely astronomical. Frustrated with the inefficiency of traditional forms of political protest after the Days of Rage and other anti-war demonstrations throughout November of 1969, the Weatherman members called for a National War Council meeting of the SDS. Members of the group discussed the need to instruct themselves in the use of firearms and bomb-making in order to target and attack sites of power in the United States and discussed the need to kill the police. Much of this discussion was fueled by the killing of two party leaders of the Black Panthers, Mark Clark and Fred Hampton, by Chicago police officers. In that meeting, which was held in Flint, Michigan, the Weathermen decided to go underground and become a small-scale paramilitary operation carrying out urban guerrilla warfare. 
By early 1970, the Weathermen had split into several underground cells throughout the country. These cells, usually with three to five men or women living together in a house, were connected to the Weathermen leadership and called the Weather Bureau. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, which began investigating the group in June of 1969, estimated the Weathermen's total numbers at 400 members. The cells were located predominantly in Berkeley, California, Chicago, Detroit, and New York City. Now what's interesting about the FBI's investigation into the Weathermen was the fact that much like they didn't believe the Brotherhood of Love could be solely responsible for the international drug smuggling ring, they didn't believe the Weathermen were solely responsible for their acts either. A copy of the Weathermen's original FBI file reveals that they believed that they were being influenced by foreign agencies in an effort to disrupt the American government on their behalf. They definitely did not believe that they were young, radical idealists who had decided that like their counterparts within the Black Panthers, they needed to use any means necessary to bring about change. Within months, the Weathermen made its way into headlines and public imagination. On March 6, 1970, three founding members of the Weathermen, Diana Auten, Ted Gold, and Terry Robbins, died in an explosion while making bombs in a Greenwich Village townhouse. Two other members, Kathy Bowden and Kathy Wilkerson, escaped. The investigators found 57 sticks of dynamite, 30 blasting caps, and timing devices in the rubble. The FBI stepped up its investigation. By April, federal indictments for the Day of Rage action had come down against 12 Weatherman members, and the Weatherman collectively was charged with conspiracy. The thing about this particular incident is there is a very, very well-known photograph of the aftermath of the debris. And in that photograph is actor Dustin Hoffman carrying a painting. Hoffman was actually the neighbor of one of the underground members whose, home, whose father's home they were using as a safe house to make bombs. Um, if you look it up on Google, uh, you'll be able to find it. I'll actually put a link down below. Now, Kathy Bowden and Kathy Wilkerson went underground, with Wilkerson living underground and on the run until 1980 when she, was, she surrendered to the police and was charged with illegal possession of dynamite and sentenced to three years. But Bowden went on to live an unassuming life as a soccer mom while continuing her ways when she met back up with several members of the Weathermen nearly 10 years later. Now, the Weatherman members began bombing targets across the country in 1970, using tactics from the handbook Firearms and Self-Defense, a handbook for radicals and revolutionaries, and the easy writers from Brazilian Marxists, uh, Carlos Megueros' Manual of Urban Guerrilla Warfare. The more significant targets included the New York City Police Department headquarters, the Presidio Army Base in San Francisco, a Long Island City courthouse, and several banks in Boston and New York. Most of the bombings were preceded by a warning to prevent casualties and were followed by a communique, or a communique, dubbed the weather report. The weathermen used the weather reports to justify their attacks, citing recent police and government actions such as the Kent State shootings, which involved the killing of four students by the Ohio National Guard at Kent State University, 
or the unlawful incarceration of other revolutionaries. The reports also often commemorated revolutionary efforts throughout the world. By the year's end, several Weathermen members had made it onto the FBI's 10 most wanted list, which had been expanded to 16 just to accommodate them. In September of 1970, the Weather Underground, after being paid $20,000, a figure which is disputed, some people say 17,000, some people say 20,000, broke Dr. Timothy Leary out of prison. Leary, at the time, was an LSD advocate and counterculture hero who was incarcerated for a 10-year sentence due to the possession of two marijuana joints. We discussed this in the last episode. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love paid the weather underground. Soon after, 25 members of the weathermen broke Leary out of prison. Actually, it was closer to five or six that actually got him out of prison, but it took 25 members to smuggle him into Canada and then into Algeria to Black Panther leader Eldridge Cleaver who had established an embassy as the Algerian government was sympathetic to African Americans and their struggle to obtain civil rights at the time. This act, however, is one of the many that shows a disconnect between the Weathermen's ideals and their actions. The Panthers were notoriously anti-drug, while Leary helped fund and create LSD labs. Leary told pretty much everyone where he was, and many of his LSD-using friends smuggled drugs into Algeria when they came to visit him. Since Algeria had extremely strict anti-drug laws that had penalty that was punishable by penalties of death, you can see how this became a problem for the Panthers. For a group that claimed to share the same ideological goals as the Panthers as far as civil rights were concerned, it's hard to understand why they would put the Panthers in such a situation by um, sending them such a loose cannon as Leary. Another thing that shows a disconnect between their ideals and their actions is the fact that they were protesting war by bombing people and places. They were basically protesting violence with violence, which really, really didn't make much sense. Now, the Pentagon bombing in May 19th, 1972, happened on the birthday of Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the Vietnamese nationalist movement, and marked the end of the Weathermen's major actions for almost a year and a half. After the signing of the peace treaty between the United States and Vietnam in January 1973, the group grappled with its post-war identity, and soon it was virtually alone in its struggle for armed resistance. Joined only by the Black Liberation Army, an offshoot of the New York chapter of the Black Panthers, the George Jackson Brigade, and the Symbionese Liberation Army, which many of you may know is the group that kidnapped Patty Hearst. By the spring of 1974, the FBI believed the Weathermen, which by then had changed its name to the Weather Underground, was one of the last radical groups of the anti-war movement and that it still endorsed all forms of violence. The Weather Underground continued to bomb targets for political reasons, but its efforts, though pointed, were sporadic. In 1974, the group issued Prairie Fire, the Politics of Revolutionary Anti-Imperialism, the first statement of the Weather Underground's politics since 1969. Soon, Prairie Fire organizing committees sprang up throughout the country as the above-ground arm of the Weather Underground Dissension struck in 1976, though, and the West Coast faction split off to form the Weather Underground Organization, which was infiltrated by the FBI in 1977. Now, in 1988, 
a string of armed bank robberies occurred and culminated in the Brinks robbery of 1981, which was an armed robbery and three related murders committed on October 20th, 1981, and were carried out by six Black Liberation Army members, Jarrell Wayne Williams, who went by Mutulu Shakur, and yes, he is related to Tupac Shakur. Donald Weems, who went by Kowisi Balagune, Samuel Brown, who went by Solomon Bonais, and Samuel Smith, Edward Joseph, and Chewy Ferguson. Also, four members of the Weather Underground, who now belong to the May 19th Communist Organization. They were David Gilbert, Judith Alice Clark, and currently on the run, Kathy Bonin and Marilyn Buck. They stole $1.6 million in cash from a Brinks armored car at the Nanuet Mall in Nanuet, New York, killing a Brinks guard by the name of Peter Page and seriously wounding another guard by the name of Joseph Trombino. James and they slightly wounded another truck driver named James Kelly. They sub subsequently killed two Nyack police officers, Edward O'Grady and Waverly Brown, who happened to be the first African-American member of the Nyack Police Department. They seriously wounded police detective Artie Keenan. Trumbo recovered from his wounds, however, and the robbery began with Bowden dropping her infant son off at a babysitter before taking the wheel of the getaway vehicle, a U-Haul truck. She waited in a nearby parking lot as her heavily armed accomplices drove a red van to the Nanuet Mall where a Brinks truck was making a pickup. At 3.55, Brinks guards Peter Page and Joseph Trombino emerged from the mall carrying bags of money. As they loaded the money into the truck, the robbers stormed out of their van and attacked. One fired two shotgun blasts into the van's bulletproof windshield, while another opened fire with an M16 rifle. Page was hit multiple times and killed instantly. Trombino was able to fire a single shot from his handgun, but was struck in the shoulder and the arm by several rounds nearly severing his arm from his body. The truck's driver, James Kelly, noticing the shooting behind him, fired several rounds at the robbers through a gun port on the door of his truck, but came under heavy gunfire and took cover underneath the dashboard, but he was hit in the head by glass and bullet shrapnel. The criminals grabbed 1.6 million in cash, got back in their van, and fled the scene. After fleeing the scene, the robbers drove to the parking lot where a yellow Honda and a U-Haul truck manned by members of the May 19th Communist Organization were waiting. The robbers quickly threw the bags of money in the car and truck and sped away. In a house across the street, an alert college student spotted them as they switched vehicles to call the police. Meanwhile, police units from all over the county were converging on the mall where the shootout occurred and attempting to cut off all possible exits. Soon, police officers Edward O'Grady, Waverly Brown, Brian Lennon, and Artie Keenan spotted and pulled over the U-Haul truck with Bowden in the front seat, along with the yellow Honda at the entrance ramp to the New York State Thruway. The police were not sure if they had the right truck since it had been reported that the robbers were all black, while the occupants of the vehicle were white, which is a very deliberate part of the original plan, hoping to fool the police and put a spotlight on racism and policies that were tied to uh, what we now know as profiling. Since the truck masked the description of the getaway vehicle they were looking for, the officers pulled it over and approached with guns drawn. The police officers who caught them 
testified that Bowden, feigning innocence, pleaded with them to put their guns down and convinced them to drop their guard. Bowden said she remained silent and that the officers relaxed spontaneously. After the police lowered their guns, six men armed with automatic weapons and wearing body armor emerged from the back of the truck and began firing upon the four police officers. Officer Brown managed to fire two or three rounds at the robbers before he was hit repeatedly by rifle rounds and collapsed to the ground. One robber then walked up to his body and fired several more shots into him with a 9mm handgun, just to be sure he was dead. Keenan was shot in the leg, but managed to duck behind a tree and return fire. Officer O'Greedy lived long enough to empty his revolver, but as he reloaded, he was shot several times with an M16. 90 minutes later, he died in a hospital operating table. Meanwhile, Lennon, who was in his cruiser when the, shout out, when the shootout began, tried to exit to the front passenger door, but O'Grady's body was wedged up against the door. He watched with the suspects jump back into the U-Haul and sped directly towards it. Lennon fired his shotgun several times at the speeding truck as it collided with his police car, then fired two rounds from his pistol. The occupants of the U-Haul scattered, some climbing into the yellow Honda. Others carjacking a nearby motorist while Bowden attempted to flee on foot. An off-duty corrections officer apprehended her shortly after the shootout. When she was arrested, Bowden gave her name as Barbara Exit. May 19 communist members Gilbert, Brown, and Clark crashed the Honda while making a sharp turn, injuring Brown's neck and knocking Clark's handgun to the floor of the car. South Nyack Police Chief Alan Cosley was the only officer initially at the scene of the crash that managed to hold them at gunpoint until Orangetown Police Officer Michael Seidel and Rockland County District Attorney's Office Detective Jim Stewart arrived. After the trio were arrested, police found $800,000 from the robbery and Clark's 9mm handgun on the floor of the backseat of the car. Police traced the license plate on one of the getaway vehicles to an apartment in New Jersey. Inside, the police found weapons, bomb-making materials, and detailed blueprints of six Manhattan police precincts. Investigations later revealed the apartment was rented by Buck, who had previously been arrested providing weapons to the Black Liberation Army. She had been sentenced to 10 years in prison, but in 1977, she was granted a furlough and never returned. While at the apartment, police also found papers that listed an address in Mount Vernon, New York, a small city in Westchester County about 20 miles from the mall where the robbery occurred. When the police raided the apartment, they found bloody clothing, ammunition, more guns, and ski masks. Investigations later revealed the bloody clothing belonged to Buck, who had accidentally shot herself in the leg when she tried to draw her weapon during the shootout with the police. All the plates on the vehicle seen near Mount Vernon addresses were entered to NCIC. Three days later, NYPD Detective Lieutenant Dan Kelly spotted a 1978 Chrysler with a license plate that had been seen at the Mount Vernon apartment and called for backup. The vehicle was driven by Samuel and Nathan Burns. They fled from police when they tried to pull them over. After the vehicle crashed, the two occupants engaged the police in a gunfight that left Smith dead and Odinga captured. Inside Smith's shirt pocket, police found a crushed 38 caliber slug they believed was fired from Officer O'Grady's service weapon. Three more participants were arrested several months later, including Weems. The investigation for the participants in the robbery would continue for years. Buck was eventually arrested in 1985, and the last person arrested in connection was Williams, the ringleader of the robbery, in 1986. Now that's going to do it for the Weather Underground. 
And in a couple of days, stay tuned, and I'll have another case, the case of a kidnapped racehorse with far-reaching political implications. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.